Chapter Two of Alexander Hamilton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Vermont. Alexander Hamilton by Charles A. Conant. Chapter Two The Fight for the Constitution. Part One Hamilton was not a conspicuous national figure during the four years which elapsed between the termination of his term in Congress and his appearance in the Federal Convention of 1787. He was working none the less earnestly and persistently, however, in favor of a stronger Union. Movements towards this Union took form almost simultaneously in different parts of the country under the impulse of a common need. The wise and thoughtful words of Washington, in his circular letter to the governor of each state on surrendering the command of the army, June 8, 1783, sank into many hearts, and did much to soften local prejudices against giving more power to the central government. The state of Virginia, in December 1783, ceded her northwestern territory to Congress, and granted a general impost significance was given to the act by the policy of the governor in communicating it to the executive authority of the other states with the suggestion that they do likewise jefferson was as cordial a supporter as madison at that time of the project of a federal union as a member of congress he prepared a plan for intercourse with the powers of europe and the barbary states in which he described the united states as one nation upon the principles of the federal constitution only two states rhode island and connecticut voted to substitute weaker words in describing the union it was voted by eight states to two march twenty sixth seventeen eighty four that in treaties and in all cases arising under them the united states formed one nation the need for uniform rules for the regulation of commerce on the potomac and the creation of roads and canals led to a number of conferences during the next two years between virginia and maryland in one of which washington played the part of referee the legislature of Maryland finally took a step which shot a bright ray of light through the darkness surrounding the prospects of a permanent union. In a letter to the legislature of Virginia, December 1785, it proposed that commissioners from all the states should be invited to meet and regulate the restrictions on commerce for the whole. Madison in Virginia gave cordial welcome to the invitation. He had already gone beyond the sentiment of his state in his zeal for union, but at his instigation a meeting of delegates from the states was called by Virginia at Annapolis, Maryland for September 1786. Hamilton snatched at the opportunity which this invitation presented. Several of his friends were elected to the legislature of New York and made the appointment of delegates to Annapolis their paramount object. In spite of much hostility, they succeeded in wresting authority from the legislature for a commission of five. Hamilton and Benson were the only two of these delegates who appeared at Annapolis. They found only four other states represented there. It was determined that the best that could be done by the little gathering was to urge upon the states a general convention to meet at Philadelphia on the second Monday of the next May to consider the situation of the United States 
and devise such further provisions as should appear necessary to render the constitution of the federal government adequate to the exigencies of the union hamilton was not a member of the committee appointed to prepare the report but it was his draft which with some modifications to meet the sensibilities of the virginians was accepted and adopted a path was now blazed in which those who favored a stronger union could walk in harmony hamilton returned to new york with the intention of exerting his whole strength in behalf of the convention he secured an election to the legislature and at once took the lead of the members opposed to the separatist policy of governor clinton he assailed the governor on the question of granting an impost to congress in a practicable form but was beaten by the solid votes of the party in power he succeeded better with his resolution for the appointment of five delegates to the convention at philadelphia the senate cut down the number to three and two of them chief justice robert yates and john lansing jr were resolute supporters of the governor but hamilton carried the vital point that new york should be represented in the federal convention and he was himself one of the delegates it was not until late in february seventeen eighty seven that this action was taken little more than three months before the meeting of the convention and it was a few days later when formal approval was given to the project by the federal congress hamilton although one of the three delegates from new york to the convention was embarrassed throughout the proceedings by the open hostility of his associates to any vigorous steps towards a strong union he had definite ideas and strong feelings however and could not restrain himself from setting forth his views of what the new government should be when dickinson proposed that the convention should seek union through a revision of the old articles of confederation hamilton took the floor june eighteenth seventeen eighty seven to show how inadequate such a measure would be and to set forth his own long matured views he spoke for six hours reviewing the history of the colonies before the revolution during its progress and afterwards the steps which had been taken towards union and the imperative necessity which had been disclosed for a government possessing complete powers within its fields of action he urged that the convention adopt a solid plan without regard to temporary opinions he laid bare unsparingly the defects of the confederacy and insisted that the articles of confederation could not be amended with benefit except in the most radical manner he opposed strongly the creation of a general government through a single body like congress because it would be without checks he continued the general government must not only have a strong soul but strong organs by which that soul is to operate i despair that a republican form of government can remove the difficulties i would hold it however unwise to change it the best form of government not attainable by us but the model to which we should approach as near as possible is the british constitution praised by necker as the only government which unites public strength with individual security its house of lords is a most noble institution it forms a permanent barrier against every pernicious innovation whether attempted on the part of the crown or of the commons hamilton made little concealment of his belief that the new government should not be exclusively republican he said on june twenty sixth seventeen eighty seven i acknowledge 
I do not think favorably of Republican government, but I address my remarks to those who do, in order to prevail on them to tone their government as high as possible. I profess myself as zealous an advocate for liberty as any man whatever, and trust I shall be as willing a martyr to it, though I differ as to the form in which it is most eligible. Real liberty is neither found in despotism nor in the extremes of democracy, but in moderate governments. Those who mean to form a solid republic ought to proceed to the confines of another government. If we incline too much to democracy, we shall soon shoot into a monarchy. In pursuance of these views, Hamilton urged that all branches of the new government should originate in the action of the people rather than of the states. In this respect, he came closer to democracy than some of his opponents, but he proposed to give strength and permanence to the government by providing that the senators and the executive should hold office during good behavior. He contended that by making the chief executive subject to impeachment, the term monarchy would not be applicable to his office. Another step, differing radically from the Constitution as adopted, and showing the unswerving purpose of Hamilton to give supremacy to the central government, was the proposal that the executive of each state should be appointed by the general government, and have a negative on all state legislation. Hamilton had no expectation that his plan would be adopted. What he sought was to key the temper of the delegates up to a pitch which would bring them as nearly to his ideal of what the new government should be as was possible under the circumstances of the times. His long speech was attentively listened to, and even Yates reported that it was praised by everybody but supported by none. Notwithstanding these criticisms, the Constitution, as it was finally adopted, embodied many of the features of the project which was outlined by Hamilton. A legislative body of two houses, the choice of the executive by electors, a veto for the executive over legislative acts, the grant of the treaty-making power to the executive and the Senate, the confirmation of appointments by the Senate, the creation of a federal judiciary, and the provision that state laws in conflict with the Constitution should be void. These, and many other features of the existing Constitution, were parts of the plan of Hamilton. It was not the open preference which Hamilton expressed for the British form of government which caused distrust of his plan. This was neither startling nor offensive to the great majority of those who heard him. Representative government under a Republican head had not then been tried upon a large scale in any part of the world. Such small republics as existed in ancient times and in Italy had been confined within narrow areas, and had in many cases presented examples of factional strife which were far from encouraging to the friends of liberty. The Americans, in revolting against Great Britain, revolted only against what they considered the false interpretation given by King George to the guarantees of the English Constitution wrested by their ancestors from King John and his successors, and consecrated by the Revolution of 1688. It was far from the thoughts of the most extreme, with perhaps an occasional personal exception, to cut loose from the traditions of English liberty, tear down the ancient structure, and build from the ground up, as was done a few years later in France by the maddened victims of the oppression of the nobles. 
the sentiment most strongly opposed to the views of hamilton was not democratic sentiment in the strictest sense of the word but devotion to local self-government hamilton was democratic enough to insist in the discussion of the manner of choosing members of the house of representatives it is essential to the democratic rights of the community that the first branch be directly elected by the people what he desired was strength at the center of authority from whatever source that authority was derived coming from a little west indian island where the traditions of parliamentary government had little footing he attached no such importance as most of his associates to the reserved rights of the states he was the man for the hour as the champion of a strong government but it would not have been fortunate in some respects if his views had been adopted in their extreme form there never was the slightest chance as he doubtless knew that they would be adopted by the descendants of english freemen who had founded self-governing states in accord with their own principles on the western shores of the atlantic having delivered a single strong speech which pointed the way towards a strong union hamilton remained comparatively in the background during the remainder of the convention it was inevitable however that he should make himself heard upon the proposal that the new government should have power to emit bills on the credit of the united states the power to issue unfunded paper had received his censure four years before as one of the defects of the existing articles of confederation he now opposed in the most emphatic manner the grant of authority to the new government to issue paper money in the form of its own notes and to force them into circulation as a substitute for gold and silver coin when governor morris moved to strike out the power to issue bills on the credit of the united states and was supported by madison it was supposed that if the motion prevailed the power to issue government paper money and make it a legal tender for debts was guarded against for all time the power was stricken out of the constitution by a vote of nine states against two madison decided the vote of virginia and declared that the pretext for a paper currency and particularly for making the bills a tender either for public or private debts was cut off it is not surprising that mr bancroft the jealous friend of the constitution in spite of the opening of the door at a later period by the supreme court of the united states declared this is the interpretation of the clause made at the time of its adoption alike by its authors and by its opponents accepted by all the statesmen of that age not open to dispute because too clear for argument and never disputed so long as any one man who took part in framing the constitution remained alive end of chapter two part one recording by daniel vermont osaka japan